Chinese government is drifting more and more away from uh, liberal democracy. National and, climate um, pledges put the world on track for a global temperature rise of about 2.7 degrees American by the end of the century. corporations are not leaving China. Every generation has something to fight when for. When we look at Europe today, we, we hardly have time to take a breath and, and look into <laughs> the future. Coming to you from the banks of the Danube, you are listening to the Vienna Coffee House Conversations podcast with me, Ivan Vevoda. Welcome to our digital salon at Vienna's Institute for Human Sciences, the IWM. In each episode of Coffee House Conversations, I'll be joined by Europe's future fellows and leading thinkers from around the world. We'll be probing their current research topics through discussion, challenge, and exploration. Listen as we explore the ideas, debates, and encounters that will shape the future of democracy in Europe and around the world. In this podcast, I'm honored and have the great pleasure of talking to Europe's Futures Fellow, Wojciech Przybielski, Editor-in-Chief of Visegrad Insight about the place of the European Union in the fast-changing 21st century world. My name is Wojciech Przybielski, I'm Editor-in-Chief of Visegrad Insight and President of Respublika Foundation, by which Visegrad Insight operates in Warsaw. By training, I'm a historian of political thought, history of ideas will be my subject and I've studied both the 19th century political thought developments around the, the beginnings of American political realism. And later I've, I've digged into the roots of ultra-conservatism coming from mid-19th century Spain. But in my daily work, I focus on democratic security in Central Europe. Central Europe is my uh, field of study, my field of expertise and the biggest networks we we have at Visegrad Insight. In my research proposal, my ambition is to try and energize the public debate, the civil society response to the big questions and big dilemmas that are ahead of Europe. I mean, should Europe be you know, autonomous in its in its place in the world in in projecting power and what sort of power should that be? Should that be the power of coercion? Should that be the power of example that Europe uh, has mastered? It seems in, in the last decades, Europe is today facing a lot of new realities. It was not uh, self-realizing before. One of which is that U.S. with Joe Biden as the president of the United States is definitely confirming its Southeast Asia pivot. And with this, there is more to be done by European uh, allies. I mean, we're still in one block, but American attention and resources need to be focused. That was also pretty clear in the decision upheld by uh, Joe Biden's administration of withdrawal from Afghanistan, regardless of, of how the performance looked like. It was releasing the resources, re- releasing the, 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 the power energy that the United States have from a very troubled part of the world into another part of the world to avoid trouble, to concentrate and to focus on, on the area that matters in the global struggle. So this is one of the reasons Europe's future now needs to be taken seriously. Europe 
is not necessarily left alone, but it's much more on its own. It's graduating from a post-war situation. We need to look into the uncharted territory where the memory and the, the, the legacy of the Second World War is not dominating our contemporary politics as much. Europe, in other words, is not going to be only a peace project for the future. It is, it has to be much more if it wants to prevail as a successful political organism, which it is. Uh, hybrid in its nature, very, very often contested from within and from outside. Specifically, my project is relating to the absence of voices from Central Eastern Europe, civil society predominantly, but not only, and the question of Europe emerging as a superpower. In Central Europe, the situation is that most of the civil society actors are completely engaged and consumed in, in their daily work with democratic security questions, which are about protecting the status quo of their country's democratic setup. The democratic institutions are challenged in, in every country. You would say even the world, of course, but specifically in Central Eastern Europe. And the energy that civil society devotes to to defending those is the energy that could be or needs to be, in my opinion, put also into the big questions of the European setup. Ambitions are there, discussions are there, but civil society from Central Europe is not participating for good reasons, which I mentioned. But at the same time, politics hates vacuum. There is nothing like vacuum in politics. Viktor Orban or Jarosław Kaczyński have been deliberately participating in the discussions, usurping, in my opinion, the, the voice of Central Europeans in what is the debate on the future of Europe. So this is this is where we are. I think the discussion is going on quite interestingly across Europe. Now my part in IWM's fellowship is is to try to bring together and energize voices on the future of Europe from Central Europe, specifically by means of our Visegrad Insight Foresight exercise, which is scenario building exercise. We have mastered together a couple of partners in the past with German Marshall Fund, but also with Center for European Policy Studies and um, the National Endowment of, of Democracy recently, which um, is a method of bringing together policy leaders from across the region and putting putting in front of them the, the questions about trends and how certain trends produce risks and, and how they converge into trajectories for the future. And then by thinking through the consequences of those trajectories to, inst to instill a public debate um, about about the, the 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 best choices ahead of us. Now, this is not purely explorative ex exercise. We we will do definitely a bit of advocacy, and next to the report, which is planned to be released in as a shadow report, voices from Central Europe on the conference on the future of Europe, and that we run with several partners across. Uh, the region, but also in Italy and in, in, in Austria, in France, we hope to have an impact, at least as the shadow report role is, to explain that uh, there is there is no agreement in general with the direction that Viktor Orban, for instance, or, or Mr. Kaczynski pushes for Europe. Welcome. It's great to have you with us. Uh, it's so great to join. Thank you, Ivan, for inviting me. Okay, let's dig deep and talk about the Conference on the Future of Europe. It seems fair to say that it hasn't had a huge public profile thus far. So for listeners that might not be aware 
that it's even happening. Could you tell us about this initiative and where it came from? The original initiative comes from French President Emmanuel Macron, but it's grounded more deeply than the political initiative. It is one of many experimentations in deliberative democracy that is set forth to, at some point in time, some believe, amend the representative democracy format that we have been experiencing throughout the 20th century. It's a search for a new format of engaging citizens and looking for a future direction for Europe. More pragmatically speaking, and again, back to the political question, Emmanuel Macron has sought to reinvigorate the public debate across Europe as part of the presidential campaign. He did the same when he was first elected as president, when he also ran a deliberative format campaign just in France. Now it's Europe's format ahead of your French presidency, where France and President Macron seek to engage Europe in uh, discussing strategic dilemmas. Would another way of saying uh, that the reason for launching into this experimentation, as you said, is the uh, progressive loss of trust generally in institutions and by the same token in the European Union with phenomena such as the rise of populism, the gilets jaunes, uh, yellow vests movement, and also the sort of grounding into the sand of mainstream parties and thus the need to somehow show from the top of the leadership of the European Union and its member states that they do care about citizens and want to somehow in their own way help them exit this feeling of disempowerment. I will not dispute uh, your perspective. I'll try to offer yet maybe another one. There is a urgent need for pro-Europeans across those who believe in the project of United Europe, even further integration of the European uh, project to energize and to speak out because what we have been hearing most of the time throughout last months and years were predominantly critics of the European project or those who are skeptic about and, 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 and see rather limits of the European integration rather than the future and the horizon to which we all should strive or even go beyond that horizon. We have seen also in the framework of the Conference on the Future of Europe that it empowered a lot of the forces that we consider politically symbolizing the Euroscepticism, European um, conservative and reformist group led by Jarosław Kaczyński in the European Parliament, this fraction to which PIS party belongs and also Matteo Salvini fractions, several others, has been organizing a political campaign on the token on the, on the, of, of conference on the future of Europe. So they've been vocal and not for the first time, but also showing that there is a potential for many more. Uh, and I would underline here the numbers, those who support European project, who want deeper integration, limit borders, they want better standards of governance across all EU. They, they are encouraged to take uh, the floor through citizens panel engagement deliberations. And yeah, I believe not often so they, they do they do this. Despite the numbers, despite that there is a majority of Europeans who support European project, the most vocal ones still remain the Eurosceptic. 
I completely agree with you on this issue that those who are in support of the European project, fully understanding the difficulties and challenges, have had a weaker voice. There's been a sort of complacency and a situation where things have been taken for granted somehow that Europe in spite of all the problems, will chug on and carry on. And, you know, who would want to break down the European project? They must be ludicrous. And yet we have seen that there have been the Eurosceptics. And in fact, your capital city, there was a meeting of uh, the leaders of these, let's call them Eurosceptics voice for, for this intense and purpose. And also going back to the Conference on the Future of Europe, that it's had a bumpy road in, into its creation because people were left out or rather candidate countries like my own, Serbia, was, was left out. Civic voices have made a strong appeal that they should be more present. So what is going to be discussed at the conference? And do you think it has any potential to substantially move some of the policy debates? The conference as organized and planned between the EU institutions and the national member states is, is quite a complicated Form. And I don't dare to explain all uh, caveats of, of the format. But just to summarize a few in terms of how people are encouraged to participate, there are citizen panels with randomly selected citizens. There is an online platform where people are requested to submit ideas, take part in an exchange of their views on certain areas, policy areas, but also new ideas that were not mapped by the European institutions. And there is a format of national debates where national governments uh, are supposed to animate and, and lead the discussions on the future of Europe in the sense of leading the organization of, the, of those discussions, encourage citizens to take, take the, to the floor. And, and finally, there are going to be sessions of the institution of the commission, parliament, which are deliberating the conference. But there are real in-person meetings or hybrid forum meetings with people coming to Strasbourg or out to Brussels to speak together among themselves. These are these randomly selected citizens. There are also groups outside of the whole process who organize themselves to discuss the whole idea of how it is implemented, having critical voices on it. There is a European in, uh, Union Institute in Florence organizing a pan-European network of people interested in the Conference on the Future of Europe mapping the problems as it is implemented and, and highlighting challenges. Calypso Nicolaidis or Nicola Milanesi, another fellow at IWM, are at the helm of it. There is a high-level observatory group on the Conference on the Future of Europe at the European Policy Center with just a few members who are also regularly meeting and submitting uh, proposals. Herman Van Rompuy is the chairman of the group even Krastev uh, is also a member. I happen to be also on board of this rather close group where we also look at the data, look how the progress is taking place in various countries also, or what are the topics that are most, say, vibrant topics of discussion. Now, it, it, for the data, I, I would say that it is now clear that public participation in the conference is uneven across nation states and proportionally uneven. So you have a big portion of people taking part in these debates in Germany and in France per capita, I mean, per 100,000 of people, and much less, uh, very minuscule, actually, numbers in Poland. Even Hungary, when you take the number of submitted proposals on the online platform for the past months, 
that was about a couple of hundred more. I think it was around 500 for Hungary and about 300 for Poland, which, you know, you have countries of, of, of course, different size and population. Hungary is three times um, smaller in terms of population compared to Poland. So you have an uneven participation across nation states, also from the countries that are, by the public opinion polls, declare themselves the most pro-EU. And yes, and people choose different subjects, of course, of what they're interested. And here the commission and the parliament agreed on a typical array of, of topics, you know, green agenda, values and security, the future of, of digital policies, digital growth. There are ideas all related really to the, to the portfolios of the European Commission, plus the idea of EU in the world. One of the big questions that is now being shaped and I'm also most interested in. And there are also new ideas, I mean, completely out-of-the-box ideas that people may submit. Coming up in part two, Ivan asks Vorchek whether it's really right to talk about the European Union as a superpower in the making. I'm glad that you enumerated the various fora in which this is happening and the fact that there's a good diversity and level of inclusion, as you yourself said, across the different member states and, and societies, and also for enumerating the topics. From your perspective, what would then a successful Conference of Europe look like? Is it, is it what you said, that simply there's this political value of bringing together and actually raising the topic uh, of the future of Europe and having people coalesce? I, I think the, the value added here is, um, if, of the conference is when it gives a fuel to a political process, when it becomes uh, a ground for political leaders and, and the leadership is really key essence here in driving Europe further, in filtering out the ideas and also respecting some of the ideas which would be minority report ideas and advancing the future of Europe grounded and in deliberative process, constant deliberative process, not just in the conference of the future of Europe, around the themes that people signal they are important to them. I don't think conference can decide the future of Europe. It's more of a consultative process. And I think it's really important that it's this process is taken for real, it's, it's taken um, uh, very seriously by the open-minded, the liberal part of, of the political establishment across Europe. To my mind, it hasn't been so in some countries which are at the brink or at the edge, you would say, in, in, in Europe. In countries where civil society is so much focused on defending rule of law and other subject of the Conference on the Future of Europe, where they are trying to mitigate authoritarian tendencies, civil society actors seem to be not really willing or able to engage in the Conference on the Future of Europe while their voice is so really needed. It's, it's the power of democracy, the power of people and their people to, to speak up. And when they do, they give them an impulse for political leadership. Now, I think Central Eastern Europe, but not only some other countries as well, are losing a potential, are losing a existing momentum and giving it up to those who usurp to the, the leadership of, of, of the future. So the conference was a topic 
for instance, at the Warsaw Summit, so-called Warsaw Summit, which I rather would depict as a reinstallation of the Warsaw Pact format with uh, pro-Russian uh, or uh, Russian-friendly or at least useful idiots meeting in Warsaw for discussing how to derail a further integration of the European project. I mean, in whose name? Certainly not in the name of people who speak on the platform and certainly not in the name of the silent majority. Now, the, the conference potential is to move people, shake people up and to show them that if they don't speak, someone else will speak for them. Indeed, the quote-unquote Warsaw Summit is basically a, a meeting of, of sovereignists, of those who want strong nation-states that sort of meet and agree between them without any sharing, to put it uh, very simply, or on their own terms. But, but moving forward and coming closer to the topics that are closer to you, and, and you mentioned that it was the place of Europe in the world and sort of the, the foreign and security uh, policy, do you see the potential then also through the conference on the future of Europe, but also outside of it, in terms of what we can call the buzzwords of European foreign policy uh, and policy in general, a strategic Europe and strategic autonomy? There's been much discussion over the past two years or so, even though the term appeared already about 10 years ago in some European documents, but it's really floated up to the top. There are different views on what it exactly means in uh, different circles and different nation states. And the project that you are doing for the fellowships Europe's Futures refers to Europe as a future superpower. It's maybe a provocative turn of phrase. So what did you exactly mean by that? For any strategy to to be coherent, there needs to be a common perception of, of threats. What is that we all really perceive as, as a challenge? Otherwise, no strategy will be coherent. So it will just enumerate a number of points, bullets and you know, co collected wishful thinking. I mean, we're talking in the week when there is a summit for democracy, and I think the Summit for Democracy, it's multi-faced, but rather focused exercise, which comes hand in hand in this process to the European effort. It emphasizes the struggle between democracy and autocracy around the world. And yes, there are specific actors behind democratic side and there are specific actors behind autocratic side. Chinese Communist Party definitely will not subscribe to democracy. That level of discussion and discussion about threats is essential to have in Central Europe, to have in all of the EU and Europe, frankly speaking, more broadly, to be able to design a coherent strategy and, and then to discuss Europe's role and ambition in the world. Let's not joke ourselves. I mean, we're not going to become a superpower like the United States, but Europe has a number of powers that can influence the course of action of its near neighbors that when put hand in hand with the ally, with the powerful ally US, but also Canada, but also countries of, of the Commonwealth or former com Commonwealth, countries of Southeast Asia, like South Korea, like Taiwan, and many others, Japan, there are combined power of attracting to certain ideas and certain code of action 
that reinforces our own security. The European Union has come up with this, uh, what's called the strategic compass that is supposed to answer the need for uh, a more concerted view of these things. How do you assess the recently published strategic compass? Well, I think it's a, it's a work in progress. It, it does go in the right direction. It looks for this common perception of, of threats, but it's not yet there. It's just a compass. It's a departure point for a discussion that we need to have. And from your point of view, the, the concept of strategic autonomy, how do you assess that? And do you think there are too many divergent views? Europe needs to have ability to react, to have power projecting options. There is a difference, of course, between French and German perspective, where for French, it's the obvious that they do it. They have no hesitancy in exporting that to even in, in the distance of, of Africa or Southeast Asia. And Germany is looking at the European project much more traditionally and very rightly so as a peace project, as a form of, of solidarity, where first and foremost, it's not about power projection elsewhere. It's about keeping a unity of the block, keeping coherence of the block, also on the strategic questions. So yes, there is a difference, a differentiation of perspective. It's a good tandem, if you think, from the perspective of the others, especially that Germany also provides military security to a large extent to Eastern Europe. I mean, we see a NATO contingent led by Germans in Lithuania on the Eastern flank, but we also have seen in the past exports of German military industry in, into Central Eastern Europe and fortune stopping of exports to Russia. From Central Eastern Europe perspective, the US has been within the NATO framework, the main and to some eyes only the only guarantor of their own security, nation state security as individual states. But there is a growing understanding across Central Eastern Europe that comes along also with discussions in the US that Europe needs to do more for itself. Strategic autonomy that way understood is no challenge to, to US. It, it, it is and should be perceived as complementary. Indeed. As you know, I, I, I lived in Washington for many years and there were endless debates about what it meant for the US, for Europe to raise its voice on the need to be a somewhat more autonomous actor in a variety of fields, but also in the security field. And my argument in discussions there was exactly what you said, and I think it's important to repeat it, that it is complementary to uh, the Western alliance if uh, Europe has that capacity to, in certain circumstances, act on its own, but it always means within the remits uh, of the alliance. Let me bring you more specifically to where you are and where I am. I'm from Southeastern Europe. You're from Central and Eastern Europe. How does one assess the situation? Is it a question of less engagement because we are sorting ourselves out, if I can put it that way? Poland and, and Hungary are the rule of law and, and many other things, and society wants to roll back the rolling back of rule of law. There are authoritarian trends in a number of, of countries. Does that mean that there is less energy for engaging on the European scene in spite of, and it needs to be repeated, the full support, majoritarian support for remaining in the European Union? There are smaller countries 
for which it it takes somehow maybe because of the size but maybe I'm I'm just here it takes quicker time to realize how fragile and sensitive they are to global uncertainties and the vacuum that results from lack of democratic security and then you take example of Lithuania uh, Estonia recently Czech Republic clearly saying and quite bravely in in terms of global diplomacy that they are not aligning and they don't wish to align to any other project than the democratic one. They risk their relationship with economic ties also with China and they get along quite well demonstrating that potential. And I think this is a sort of a bottom-up process in the theater of European nations that is taking place where Quite frankly, Poland has been much of an example in, in the past for many countries and may be a driving force in the future. But right now, it's for the smaller, much more agile countries to lead the way and show what's really important because it takes them perhaps quicker to realize how how fragile and sensitive they are to the global turmoil. Thank you very much for, for that insight, Wojciech. I think we've touched upon numerous topics on the future of Europe and obviously the conference is a good focal point to discuss these issues, but equally relevantly to look at the different ways in which Europe is perceived, both in the civil societies and the need for greater engagement of citizens, given the levels of distrust that, that have appeared. We will be discussing these issues far into the future and in the immediate future as well, as uh, the different Europe Futures Fellows discuss their topics and your topic, I think, is extremely relevant for the way in which we approach the uh, current condition that we are living in at this beginning of the 21st century. Wojciech, thank you very much for your time and for being with us. Thank you, Ivan. Thanks for having me both as a fellow and now on the podcast. That concludes this episode of Vienna Coffeehouse Conversations the podcast brought to you by the Europe's Futures Programme at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. Europe's Futures is a programme of impact, ideas and action for a Europe that rises to the challenges of the 21st century and is undertaken in collaboration with the Erster Foundation. To find out more about our work and research, visit europesfutures.eu.